We're just very happy we can share our story. I just want to get a dog in here. What's the dog doing in here? The door slipped open. Okay. Just <laughs> Sorry. one second, just one second. Sorry. Benji! Uh, who let the dogs out, am I right? Um, uh... <laughs> who, who, who let the dogs in? <laughs> Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 161. In this episode, we're talking about parenting children on the spectrum with Naomi and Mike Bird. Naomi is an assistant children's and family minister at her local church and a connect leader with MOPS Australia. Mike is an academic dean and lecturer in theology at Ridley College, Melbourne. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie K. Judd, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Sydney Tooth, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So, Sydney, Steph, Chris, this was a, a wonderful conversation with both Naomi Bird and, and Mike Bird. Uh, we've had Mike on the podcast a number of times. Uh, it was great to be joined uh, by his wife as well to have a wonderful chat about parenting uh, their son, Marcus, who is on the autism spectrum. What were some of the takeaways that you all had from our conversation with the birds? I think one thing I really appreciated was hearing their experience in church with their son and um, with other kids there who have various um, disabilities and um, experiences and just thinking about what that means as a church to um, value the gifts those differences bring and um, what that might look like in different seasons. I think that was really helpful to talk about that. Um, and and as well, the challenge for everyone who's involved in ministry to be thinking about inc- inclusivity and um, how to foster that within their own communities. Yeah, I agree with that, Sydney. And I think that one of the the key challenges in when you're doing life and choosing to belong to a people that are different to you, that are other to you, is learning how to pay attention and um, receive the opportunity that that different people present to you to um, see see the image of God in them. And I, I think I did appreciate uh, hearing um, Mike's reflections, particularly on how we need to do a little bit more work in understanding what the image of God means. And uh, I think that that's, that, that I think is a, a key a key area that the church, at least in the traditions that I come from, um, needs to do more work um, in respect of regarding, you know, is the image of God just about cognitive rationality? Um, and if so, well, I mean, if 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 your if your conception of what the image of God is doesn't doesn't accommodate people with disability, then it's defective. <laughs> so um, I think that that was at least one one part of a very rich conversation that I appreciated. Yeah, I really appreciated the the openness of um, Naomi and Mike in in engaging with the lived experience of disability as it touches them in their family. Uh, one of the the challenges with disability uh, is the impact on the people who are intimately connected to, uh, in that situation, and so hearing from them as, as a, a very raw account in many ways as how that's happened in their church experience in, in their walk uh, has, is of great benefit for us and with that here's our conversation with naomi and mike bird well mike and naomi thanks so much for joining us well, thanks for having us, uh, everyone. It's great to be with you, and I'm glad to be here with my wonderful wife, Naomi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I don't get to do podcasts with her very often. Apparently, she's not really into the divine ontology in ancient religions. No, that's not my thing. <laughs> well, we're, well, we're so great to have you both. Mike, welcome back, and Naomi, it's wonderful to have you with us. So we want to start this conversation by hearing a little bit about your family story and your family dynamic. Yeah, well, Naomi and I got married in 1999. I was in the army. Uh, you were a, you were a nanny for an army family, and uh, I then resigned from the army, went to theological college, and uh, you know from that point we started a family. And then I did a, a PhD. I taught in Scotland, Brisbane, and now we've been in Melbourne, and we have 
for children and all of our children are very different. Uh, but early on, we noticed that one child seemed to be particularly different. Uh, Naomi, you, you want to take it from here? Sure. So um, when Marcus was born, um, he was a great little kid. Um, and uh, he was a little bit quirky, but uh, we just thought that it was a boy after we'd had two girls. Um, and uh, there were lots of little different things um, that I can look back now and see. Um, and uh, lots of uh, rocking and lots of uh, movement uh, was a big thing for him. And um, I didn't really think anything of it. I just thought, well, he's a boy, he's different, he's not a girl. And um, boys are just weird. Boys, yep, they're, they're a different breed. And um, when he um, started kinder, I'd noticed a few things that were maybe a little bit different. Um, when Marcus was uh, 17 months old, um, uh, Theo, our youngest, came along. So uh, and he was different again. So there's a lot of comparisons that I was able to make and go, actually, there's things that Marcus would never do that uh, Theo could. So what uh, what makes him different? What, what's going on? Um, so when he started school, uh, I had some questions for his teacher. Um, and the long and the short of it was, um, I read an article on sensory processing, uh, which felt like um, someone had sat in my living room and written an article about my son. And uh, we engaged the help of an occupational therapist uh, who um, was dealing with a lot of his sensory issues. He was a big sensory seeker. Um, sensory processing disorder is not really a huge diagnosis here in Australia, uh, but he was an absolute seeker of anything, any movement uh, and deep pressure um, stuff, but also overwhelmed by a lot of um, things as well. He never watched a movie sitting upright. He would sit on his head uh, to watch a movie. Then we ended up seeing a paediatrician uh, and got a diagnosis of ADHD, uh, followed very closely by uh, a, an autism spectrum disorder uh, diagnosis. Uh, that's the, the short story. Yeah, and then we've just simply gone on and walked along with Marcus about the best care for him, both for his learning needs his personal needs and uh, of course as well you know think about his spiritual needs thanks so much for sharing guys and how old is marcus now he's 13 uh he'll be 14 uh next week and he's grown into a really amazing kid uh, but those early years were really challenging they were mm -hmm. really hard um there was a lot of grief that went along with a diagnosis um there was a lot of why us um why him and um but he has grown and has changed and i wouldn't wouldn't change our journey uh for anything uh, i mean one, one of the more difficult things is that he is aware that he's different and he can be a little bit um conscious of that and you know the, the, that but what i've told him is that for him some things are easier uh some things are harder but nothing is impossible. So he he is very good at some things like, you know, he's anything that's sort of outdoorsy or working with hands. I mean, I knew the kid, I knew the kid was special when he was about three and a half and I saw him catch a fish with his bare hands. That's that's when I knew the kid was different, you know, just kind that's of looking at a rock pool, stares at it, thrusts his hand in. You know, the, the average three and a half year old is not catching fish with their bare hands. And uh, he does have a remarkable ability to look to, to work with animals, anything outdoorsy. Uh, I, I could definitely see a career for him in agriculture. Um, he's not going to—he's not going to um, solve any mathematical problems about theoretical calculus. Uh, but he, he'll, I think he'll definitely do something, uh, you know, with his life that'll be outdoorsy. Yeah, he has the, an, an ability to see the world uh, very differently. Um, he can see things that everybody else misses. I remember walking across a playground uh, with him when he was about six and I was about to step on the pavement and he's like, no, mum, stop. I'm like, what? He's, he's like, there's ladybug eggs on that leaf. 
I'm sure enough, there was ladybug eggs on that leaf. He's got this brilliant eyesight. He's got an eyesight like a hawk. It's it's really amazing. No one else would see that. No one else would notice it. One of the things that um, Professor Brian Brock talks about in his book, Wondrously Wounded, I'm not sure if you've come across it, when he's talking about his son, Adam, um, he talks about the way in which uh, people who are labelled with the term disability often present a uh, a rupture to what we expect, but that's also an invitation into wonder because um, we have to pay more attention. And something I'd like to hear from you guys as you've um, parented your son is how how has that, um, I mean, with, with any child as parents, you have to pay attention to them and take them as they are and as they as they present themselves to you. How has um, your experience of parenting differed with Marcus compared to your other three kids? Lots of pivoting, uh, lots of things that uh, didn't work. We found that uh, his response to shame and disappointment was really hard. And what had previously worked with our girls um, when it came to timeouts and things like that, he, he just had no grasp on. And that that's really challenging because you're constantly having to change tact um, in how to do that. And he he just, oh, it's really hard to explain. Yeah, I think it's finding ways to both optimise his performance at school and somewhat manage his behaviour because you have to do everything ranging from uh, how you encourage him, you have to do different to everyone else. How you discipline him, you have to do different from everyone else. How you coach him, and it just threw like a, a bunch of trial and error. I mean, a good example is we found that he's, he's actually quite well behaved at school. So he's a very good lad at school. He doesn't get into trouble, but he uses all of his emotional energy um, kind of at school to behave. And when he kind of gets home, um, he, he kind of like lets go and he's, he's, he's more likely to be a little bit more, you know, volatile. He's kind of used all his obedient energy at school and, and now he, he doesn't want to take any more orders from anyone. So he, he can be a little bit more um, agitatable uh, when he gets home, doesn't like being told to do stuff. But one thing I found that really helps him is, I, you know, I would drive him like 10 minutes down the road to a nature reserve and having 20 minutes just to walk around a nature reserve just kind of brought his mood down about an octave and it just enabled him to relax. And then he was, you know, after that, he'd be much better at doing things like getting his homework done, helping out with any family chores and just going back into the routine. So there was, you know, several things we, we found through trial and error uh, are just, just a better way of helping to um, regulate, to, re to regulate his, his sort of mood and feeling and to optimize uh, his performance, but you just got to find what works, and it's and it's different for for every for every for every kid. The distinguishing between disobedience and the disability is really tricky. So, are you choosing to be defined in what you're, you know, whatever is happening, or is this an outworking of your disability? Uh, and that's really tricky. That mm. that constant back and forth questioning. Uh, his motive uh, and being able to distinguish can be really tricky. And the other, I mean, the other thing you've got to remember, and this is hard, and this is where you really need the the empathy, is that people on the autism spectrum literally experience the world differently. You know, we can like, you know, you can be in a in a room or an environment where you've got six different noises, and our minds are able to kind of filter them out by you know degree of importance or relevance to what we're doing. Uh, some people on the autism spectrum don't don't always have that ability. They don't have the ability to filter everything, so they can they can receive everything around them as a cacophony of noise. Whether that's a conversation, uh, that's a phone ringing, a car driving past. So they they literally experience the world differently, and it's different for every person on the spectrum. Uh, but th that's what that's what you've got to and you've got to try and remember that this person is is, is not who as I am that they are literally wired up in their brain differently. And there are different things that stimulate them. Uh, there are different things that annoy them. And, uh, and it's, you just have, just have to accept that and, and try to imagine what it's like to be a person in that position. 
And what that with that you're dealing with your own children or someone at college or work or a customer or wherever you are in life. I think that's one of the things you do have to be sensitive to. People just experience the world differently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um again that that uh, invitation to take this person as they are and as they present themselves. And I think that one of the difficult spaces um, or one of the particularly fraught spaces where that comes up is in our church communities. And you mentioned before um, that, you know, um, Marcus has presented um, this opportunity to, you know, how do you parent him spiritually um, and in his involvement in in your church communities. Do you want to explain us, to us a little bit about how that journey has been for you? Challenging, very challenging. From very early on, church was overwhelming for Marcus. Uh, he, the noise, you think of the music and the band and the people and the um, the smells, it all was a lot uh, when he was little. Before we moved to Melbourne, we were in a church and um, they were great with him. He hated going out to Sunday school or creche uh, unless there was a man on the roster that week and uh, he seemed to, to cope with that. Finding those things that enable him to be at church has been really important for us. Um, before we came to Melbourne, he didn't have a diagnosis. We had our challenges. We didn't understand what they were, um, but we had people around us who were willing to work with us and try and help him engage and settle. He had a diagnosis early in year one, at the very beginning of year one. So talking to our ministry teams in ways that they can support him. We did things like quiet stacks. That came in later on. So our church um, instigated a, a, a Sunday school called Quiet Stacks. Our, Stacks program is our Sunday school program. And the idea being a space for kids who just find being out with all the other kids too much. Uh, and that was a really great success uh, leading up to COVID. Uh, interestingly, we didn't just have kids on the autism spectrum. We had a lot of kids that had high anxiety. Some of our much just quieter kids that just didn't engage in a normal program. We haven't been able to bring that back post COVID yet. But uh, it's been really good uh, in having a space uh, and encouragement. We've always made church a priority as well. So this is what we do on a Sunday. Uh, so. And, and now he's also at the age where he attends a youth group as well, which, which goes fairly well. And it, it's also good because he makes a good connection with friends. And there are other friends there who are also on the autism spectrum. So it means he's dealing with people who were both like him and unlike him, and he's socializing uh, in a Christian space, in a Christian context. And uh, I mean, you know, there are some days after school, like on a Friday, he may not necessarily feel like going, uh, but more often than not, he's kind of in the mood for a bit more um, socialization in a somewhat um, semi-regulated fun context where they can do sort of, you know, fun things together. Creating a community of kids around him, that friendship group. Uh, it's important for any kid. <laughs> uh, more so, we're trying to create that around Marcus now. Um, and he there is a group uh, of about six or seven kids his age that are, are at our church in varying degrees at varying times. But that's the big thing. I, I think that if you can keep them coming to church, um, that's helpful. Um, he doesn't always engage in the content, but what's really interesting, he doesn't always engage, but he's always listening. Mm. He always knows what's going on. Um, and even if he's not appearing to be engaged, and I, I see this with a lot of the kids, cause I now help run our Sunday school program is that they may not be involved, like be engaged and appearing to be listening, but they're taking in everything and every little bit of spiritual content is mm. is important those little tiny seeds that you plant um are you know going to flourish at some point and you need to just uh make it a safe space and make it uh, an easy place for them to be i think is the most important thing 
Can you um, explain to us what what goes on in quiet stacks? Like what what actually? Sure. What, how is it different? So the way that we made it different was uh, the program was a little bit more loose, but stringent at the same time, if that makes sense. So the structure within it, but um, imagine walking into a room full of people and not quite knowing what you need to do. So one of the first things we did is we had activities that they could go to. So whether that's a, um, some kinetic sand we had out that they found that they could regulate by coming in and doing that. Coloring in is always a good thing for girls, not necessarily for boys. Um, so we had a group of different activities that they would come in. Uh, they could see something that interests them and they could go to that. And we gave a time of regulation. So the idea was they could come in, find something that they can do without feeling like you're coming in and sitting on a mat, uh, engaging with a whole group of people, which is really overwhelming. Then uh, our story tended to be more interactive. So for example, we might do the story of Noah and, Noah and the animals, and there was a lot more engagement. So getting the kids involved in the story. So instead of having just one person sitting there on a chair or standing there, it, let's, let's do the story together. Let's make it interactive and engaging. This gives them more movement within the story time. So they're not just expected to sit and listen. They're engaged a little bit more. Um, if uh, a child was struggling, we had a tent that they could go and hide in. But often you find they're still listening. They're still engaging. Um, and then we would have uh, craft time, but then we'd also still have this other sensory things that they could be doing. So kinetic sand was one that we had. We'd often have blocks or some other building something. So it's not you're everybody's expected to do the one thing. We're all different. We're all wired differently. So let's give you an option. Um, tried to make a creative prayer. So something that was either tangible you could hold or something that it wasn't just sitting and praying. So it's all about engaging our, not just our sitting and listening, our ears, but engaging our other senses, our, our sense of smell, our sense of taste, sense of um, touch, just to help um, them understand the gospel more, help them to own it and understand it without them feeling like it's just so much. And because every child is different, you can't just have one way. So there's lots of different, and then we don't expect kids to, if they have a, an aversion to sand, we're not going to make them touch the sand. You know, it's um, it's understanding how to engage the kids um, that way. And we would give parents a profile to be able to fill in and say, hey, how is it that we can help your child? What's What are the things that do they avoid? How do we engage them? What are their special interests that give us conversation? So those play times might seem a waste, but you get down and you talk with these kids and you ask them about what is their interest? What is it that they were doing this week? Or those connections and making a child feel valued uh, were part of that um, Quiet Stacks community. But uh, it is a challenge to run two separate um, Sunday schools or kind of, you know, sort of children's ministries um, at the same time because you've got you've got to have the volunteers and the people yeah you've got to make sure the volunteers are you know uh you know not pediatricians but you know at least sensitive to you know that the, the, these children you know are not the the ones that like to sit around play duck duck goose and and you know listen to a you know a, a kind of a, a story about you know the parable of the sower acted out by you know um the Sunday school teacher so the, so you've got to have the resources to be able to run these things in in parallel and uh, and and then you also get some parents who say well why can't they just go to the normal sunday school like a normal person does and you you can get some of those i won't say cranky uh people but people just just don't understand um, you know, you know why we've got to you know run these things uh, these way. So yeah, th there are, there are some challenges to doing that, but with a little bit of research, a little bit of creativity, a little bit of consultation with the um, parents, um, you know, it, it it can it can be done. Even in in a hypercognitive <laughs> um, subculture, that 
that the tradition that I come from comes, you know, um, has, I think that having a more integrated holistic spirituality is, is not a bad thing. Um, but I think that you've just um, touched on one of those live conversations in, in this space, which is around whether you sequester off and tailor programs in our spiritual communities, even in not, not just in Sunday schools, but in church services generally, um, or um, make our existing services more accommodating to um, to people that see and experience the world differently. Um, I'd be interested to know how your experience with your son has challenged and shaped and informed the way that you see church community. I think our response has been generally positive. Uh, I mean, because it's, I mean, in, in the case of autism, this is this is not a unique condition. It's not like our son's got some one in a million um, disability. So, that, I mean, you know, there's a significant number of people in the wider autism community and with varying degrees or various expressions of autism. So I think we have the advantage in that sense that there are, there are you know, several other people in the boat with us, uh, which means this is an issue that does come on people's radar uh, at least sometime in the course of their church ministry. Um, you know, it, it, it does, it, it is, um, it can be challenging. Um, many people don't want to sit through a 45 minute sermon and, um, you know, kids on the autism spectrum definitely do not want to sit on a 45 minute um, sermon talking about the uh, vessels in the temple and uh, the difference between profane and holiness in Levitical purity laws. Um, don't get me along. I, lo I love my Levitical purity laws. I mean, they're, they're, they're really, they're really my um, John 3, 16. Um, but, you know, some, some things are going to be tr uh, harder and there are going to be some elements of a church service that will be more difficult. And yeah, I mean, I'm not the only one who sat next to a kid and the kid has said, please tell me this is the last song. You know, I think many of us have had that experience. Uh, but, you, you, but you get, I think you get that more so with kids on the spectrum because they're either they're either um, overwhelmed by the by the stimulation or they're craving um, a certain type of stimulation. So they're either hypersensitive or they can be hyposensitive. Okay, and, 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 and so I think church services can be a little bit like that. Um, you know, maybe having the uh, mega loud drum kit, you know, I've got no problems with drums, but I think the mega loud drum kit, which sounds like the, uh, the thunder of the Lord is approaching uh, is going to probably annoy a lot of people but especially those who are hypersensitive so i mean the little things you can you can you can do like that i think can help a lot i mean Naomi, what, what would you add we have been blessed in our community in our church that it is very inclusive um when it comes to not just marcus but um, other people with disabilities um, we've got several people who have physical disabilities in wheelchairs um we've got we've had um downs kids um and so in our church community we're incredibly blessed in um people's understanding and uh inclusion um and i know that that's not everybody's experience and that's really hard um and it makes me really sad when churches um aren't inclusive and aren't um trying to find ways um to include families that uh, have kids with autism. Um, I spoke with our NDIS uh, uh, coordinator recently. I'll explain NDIS is the National Disability Insurance Scheme, Scheme, which is uh, an Australian program that provides um, support financing for uh, families with a uh, with a with a uh, disabled person and just yep. Sorry about that. Anyway, I spoke with our NDIS uh, caseworker and I was talking to her about uh, church. She's not a Christian. I was talking to her about church and she was saying how many of her um, clients, they just, that are Christians, just don't go to church anymore because churches don't try and make, make it inclusive or make it, they don't make it easy for families to be involved. Um, Church is, is a foreign kind of idea to some people. What is it to go and sit in a church and sing these songs and listen to a sermon? Mm. So for some people, it's this foreign idea. And when your brain is wired differently, they're like, why do we do this? Mm. Why do we 
what what does this mean for me? Uh, what's the importance? Um, and I think that for Marcus, we continue to encourage him to be part of the church community. Um, we give him ownership of being involved. For example, this weekend he didn't want to be didn't want to come to church in the morning. So I said, well, you've got a choice: you come in the morning or you come at night. And he came. He sat in the back corner. Uh, didn't sit next to anybody, but that's okay. He was there. He was still engaging with people, uh, people who care for him. Uh, and also he was still hearing stuff uh, and probably more than we realise. And the other, and I think this really emphasises that uh, all churches and anyone training for ministry does have to think about, you know, disabledness and you know, what we would call ableism because roughly one in five people in, in, in the world and in your churches will have a disability. You'll either be, be born with a disability, acquire a disability through injury or illness, or you will age into disability. So, you know, one in five people in our churches are, are going to have some degree of impairment, most likely at some point in their lives. So, you know, it's something we have to think about. And when, when, when it comes to inclusivism, this is where I'll, I'll channel a little bit of John Swinton. I, I know someone you're already you're connected to on, on the podcast, but we, we don't want an, an inclusive church in the sense these people are, be, are tolerated, you know. Um, you know, not to be tolerated, you want them to be valued, which means you notice and you miss them when they're not there. Okay, and I think that is probably the number one change we've got to we have to make in in the way we think about people with disability and church they're not not to be just tolerated we are to value them value what they contribute value what they they bring and um you know recognize that their absence lessens our fellowship now that i would say is is one of the number one thing churches and certainly anyone in ministry or training for ministry uh, has got to keep in mind thanks mike so as thinking about then the the context of church and and uh often kids and and even indeed adults uh on on autism spectrum and with other forms of disability they're seen as uh breaking the the normativity of the church is that everyone should come to church looking in a certain way and and um and experience things in a certain way and 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 understand things in a certain way uh the experience of disability within the church often challenges that um how have you seen that then filtering back into the the um the church the the church engagement for those who you know our culture would broadly consider to be normative um it has, have you seen that as a two-way street? Um, Pat, Naomi, you mentioned before the, the challenges of running two, um, you know, kids programs. How, perhaps how how has the experience of running um, the uh, and what many people consider a non-normative program uh, Im- impacted on the the, the normative? I mean, in scare quotes, normative program. Yeah, I'll uh, say. Well, I mean. I think homogenous churches are always a, a bad idea. If everyone is a clone of each other, um, that I mean, that's not the church of the New Testament. It's you know we are meant to be uh, a, a, you know diverse people. We are there you know Jew and Greek, male and female. You know we are, we are meant to be diverse at, at every level, and diversity is messy. Uh, diversity can be conflictual. Diversity means people view things differently. People have different needs different expectations and yet that diversity uh is as paul's metaphor of the body is completely necessary um because you know if we're if if we're all just from the same social class same education same same interests in in music we all like the exact same theology you know that that type of thing uh that's going to lead to an an impoverished church so I, i think diversity uh, is is good because we we need we need the introverts the extroverts we need the enneagram ones and the enneagram nines however you want to you want to put it uh, we do need this diverse body to have all the strengths and to make up for each other's weaknesses and people on the autism spectrum um, yeah they 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 can have their own weaknesses they can sometimes appear 
to lack empathy or lack um, interest in, in certain things. But they, but they also have a very good, uh, uh, often have a good ability to, to have laser-like focus on some particular problem that needs fixing. Um, they can easily relate to others who, who also uh, feel a little bit of different and, and out of place. They can show you some of the blind spots in, in your own church and ministry. So I think we, 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 the idea that everyone in church should be normal um, scores a 12.6 on the heresy meter because um, there is no normal. There is only um, in the image of God and in Christ. What would you add to that, Naomi? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of inclusion and being able to do things um, together. Um, since the pandemic, we haven't run our quiet stacks because of um numbers uh because of volunteers but because of that you kind of learn to be a little bit more creative in how you do things um to make it fit better um so for me my big trick uh is a box of pipe cleaners um very cheap very easy and giving kids something to fidget with passing them off you know a pipe cleaner or two for them to to, to fidget with engages them in other ways it, it helps to uh, engage those listening skills uh, instead of just trying to sit comfortably or sit still um, the two sunday school programs that we were running um, were great for a time and sometimes that's what you need sometimes a ministry is there for a moment to help out uh, to engage for a moment then you might move to something that becomes more inclusive. Um, an example of that is we also run a, a really big school holiday program uh, at our church. It's been running for 25 years. And if, imagine a church <clears throat> with 150 kids and about 50 to 70 leaders in there as well. Uh, the noise level is quite incredible. Um, and it's an amazing outreach that our church does marcus hated it from the very first time he went and it's it's overwhelming it's loud it's noisy there's people that touch me about five years ago i went there's got to be a way of trying to uh, enable kids to be part of this program um without feeling overwhelmed and that's when we started what we call our um what do we call it? A sensory space. And, and it was just, we converted our prayer room into a place where they could, it wasn't a separate program, but it was a place that they could go to reset. So they could go and uh, do some coloring in. There was a weighted blanket that they could sit under. There was, I had a basket, my biggest trick for Sunday school and church, earmuffs, basket of earmuffs at the door that kids could put on that filtered out some of that overwhelmingly loud noise. Um, and it, the idea was that they could come out of the program and reset, gave them a moment, and then they could come back in and participate. Uh, and that I think is that inclusion. It's the, we understand, we're not gonna stigmatize it. We're just gonna say, here is a space, this is what it's for and you can come and be in that space uh, and we're open to anybody coming to our program that might have a, a higher needs child as well this is why we have our ndis funding is to enable our kids to participate in these kind of programs we've had people kids come along with their carers and not only is that a, an opportunity to minister to those kids it's an opportunity to minister to those um those carers that may have never stepped inside a church Pivoting away from experience in church and thinking about parenting again, and as you guys have journeyed through this, uh, I, I have a few friends with little kids who are starting to think, oh, maybe we need to look at diagnosis, and, and there's some things like you had with Marcus of thinking this is different. Um, and from your journey, from your experiences, I think it'd be helpful to hear uh, what um you've learned in that journey what's been most helpful that other people have done coming alongside you or professionals helping and what's been unhelpful 
Oh, so many unhelpful things, um, but we won't start there. Um, I think that it's one of my um, joys and my passions is to walk alongside families as they seek a diagnosis. Um, I've um, worked quite a bit with MOPS Australia um, there and mums of preschoolers. So it's an international organisation and I've gone and shared uh, in a lot of groups. And with that has come a lot of people, a lot of mums who have come to me and said, I think that this is uh, where we're headed with one of my children. Um, and it's it's been a privilege for me because when I when we had a diagnosis for Marcus, I didn't know anybody who had a child um, with a diagnosis. I had I think I knew maybe two people that had children with a diagnosis, but it was a really lonely time. Um, there were lots of questions as to what had I done something wrong? What why why was it that we were dealing with this? Um, lots of questioning God um, and the outcome of that was the desire to have nobody else feel that way, the desire to know that there was somebody else that's been ahead of you uh, and walked this journey and can direct you in uh, different ways to different resources or understanding to have somebody to, to have a shoulder to cry on. Um, so if you've got a child with a disability, walking alongside people who are before you, I think is really important. Yeah. Um, and being able to say, you're not alone. Um, you, we can do this together. I totally get it. Um, I think until you have a child, uh, who has, um, been diagnosed on the autism spectrum, you don't really get it. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember before my boys were born, um, having friends that uh, had kids that were diagnosed and not really understanding what that meant. Mm. Um, so yeah, walking alongside uh, people is I think really important. Um, not being judgmental of the process, uh, I think is incredibly important. It's so individual because every child is different. Every family unit is different. Um, you then have, you might have grandparents culturally that may not accept a diagnosis. There's so many different, um, factors that go in, into it. Um, yeah, I can remember a, a generation where everything we knew about autism, we learned from Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man. Uh, that was, you know, that was basically where everyone, everyone, and they just assumed if you were, if you had autism, you were kind of like Dustin Hoffman, which meant you were socially awkward and very good at counting cards and casinos. Um, which is absolutely not the case since it's a, it's a spectrum, um, you know, from people who are all, you know, or sort of, you know, um, nonverbal, nonverbal autism is, you know, uh, uh, is one end of the spectrum all the way through to people who just appear slightly quirky, uh, in, in some ways. And so lear learning about autism is, 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 it's kind of like a spectrum and it manifests in different ways. I mean, that, that, that was a big journey. And that was certainly something I think was not known um, in, in, in the wider community. I think our acceptance and understanding of autism has come a long way in the last 10 years. Um, and even more so in the last probably five years. Mm. Um, so the unhelpful things uh, is judgment, judgment of parenting. Um, yeah. It, that that's the hardest thing I think I've struggled with is when you've got parallel children um, and people who make harsh comments to your child's behavior. And it's a lot of the time those meltdowns, they're meltdowns. Children, they, they don't have the ability to understand what they're doing. Um, and it, it's looked on with disgust and you're a bad parent. Mm um and and that's really hard and it's hard not to see it yeah. you know you see the people uh that are sniggering in the corner or you know making snide comments behind you at the supermarket or or you know, family members who just say you know he's, he's not autistic or 
it's just you're just a bad parent you know what you need is the firm hand of discipline or something like that and uh when you even get you know extended family saying things like that um you know that that i mean that really does cut pretty deep because they they don't know the whole story they don't know the journey uh they don't have to deal with these things on a daily basis um they just have like a you know a one 10 minute clip into something that may not be the best uh the, the best uh time of the of the of the best day and um yeah i mean and, and that, that's that's the hardest thing and that's why i think you really do need you really do need the the empathy thing um and the ability to to think okay i mean this this is this is just one thing that's happening at one moment this is not the be all and end all of the parenting or the or the child's behavior and i think that that's that's one thing and that's often can i say one of the number one things that drive families away from churches there can be uh the lack of empathy uh the inability to understand and the inability to make even minor changes just to help families you know who who, who um for, for various reasons, may struggle with some aspects of corporate worship or community life. Other unhelpful things that we've had um, is the whole immunisation uh, causes autism. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it, it's been disproven, but the damage is done. Um, and we have enough guilt as parents um, without adding those kinds of things to it. And in all honesty, it doesn't change the outcome of who my child is, um, but it still it still hurts, and it's it's really hard uh, to um, to really grasp that that whole thing. Um, and uh, there was another thing that I had that was unhelpful. Weird family members on Facebook with weird opinions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we all yeah. have them <clears throat> yeah we have them we all have them yeah um one of the actually uh i think when you have a child with any kind of disability uh it's really important getting alongside the siblings um of those those families because they miss out they you might not go to a certain event because it is just too hard um, to take that child into that environment, but being able to take those siblings and and them not to miss out. There are a lot of points that I feel like uh, my girls particularly have missed out on um, being able to do and participate in things because it was just, it, it was a matter of setting Marcus up for fail. Um, when you put them in a situation that you know that they're not going to do well in, and you know that it's it's going to result in meltdown or it's going to result in challenges. Um, I think that you, well, you just choose not to, um, but then it does mean that your other children miss out. Yeah, I think I think in the early days, the only restaurant we went to was a Scottish one called McDonald's. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean restaurant rest, things like restaurants. I mean, I mean even with small, with the best of small children restaurants are hard but when you've got kids who are very fidgety and craving some kind of stimulation um things like restaurants can be even harder hmm. so you know um so yeah i mean there are, so there are little minor things you've got you've got to you've got to change like that yeah there are some things that you can't avoid but you can choose to not put your child in places that are going to be difficult for them i try avoid the major triggers yeah yeah so but yeah i think uh, yeah, ultimately, walking along alongside people non-judgmentally, I think, is one of the, the best things that you can do. Um, and having a great support team of um, occupational therapists, psychologists, um, speech therapists that can help you uh, in those areas, I think, is really important. Um, and engaging a psychologist for yourself to work through uh, all the stuff that comes with uh, a diagnosis is um, really important as well. Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, in terms of individual parenting, I think this also applies to in the classroom or even Sunday school. Um, often these kids need a very delicate mix of both compassion, um, but not but not giving them the license to run amok because they're different. I mean, you know, there is, there is, there is some bad behavior they can do. I mean, they can be disruptive, uh, but it's getting that right balance between okay cut the kids some slack 
And, you know, on the other hand, okay, that's enough. You know, you, you know, you shouldn't be doing that and you, there's no need for you to do that. So, and that, that's the other thing that's, because uh, some people want to give a little bit too much slack. Others, you know, maybe lack on the compassion, but I think you, you really do, you really do need that little bit of both, that little bit of that, that ability to know when, when do we give them some slack and when do we kind of, you know, rein them in because, you know, you don't, you don't want to make the, the disability or the diagnosis an excuse to let you know everything run, you know, run amok as it were um you still have to have boundaries you still have to have limits um but with, with kids on the spectrum i think you've just got to be a little bit more sensitive to how you do the um shall we say the carrot and stick um of, of parenting well it should be left up to the parent yeah well yeah it is but teachers have to do it too teachers yes yeah. but yeah there's engaging parents in those conversations thanks so much mike and naomi i wonder if I can ask about how your experience um, with Marcus and parenting and learning um, about autism and how, it be, as you mentioned earlier, just thinking through how we all experience and see and think differently, how that's impacted your own theology um, and experience of God. I think that God is way bigger than uh, we realize. Um, and uh, that comprehension of uh, that God doesn't make a mistake um, has been huge for me that um, he's given us Marcus for a reason that uh, he's all loving but at times it's really hard to grasp that when I see my son struggle when life feels really hard with what he has to go through and what his challenges are really impacts um at times my own my own faith in a in an aspect that it's shaky and uh questioning but i also know that god will he he wants us to question he wants us to come to him uh, and to lament those times that are really hard but it does make it challenging when you know that your son is going to struggle you know that he's going to have people around him that aren't always going to accept him and uh, understand who he is and that uh, God did an amazing thing when he made Marcus. But ultimately, I'm, I am thankful uh, for the journey that God has taken us on and that he, he's with me in that, in that space. And I think that that's hard at points because you feel like that you can be left alone and that it feels like the journey can be lonely uh, and that um, you you don't quite grasp what's going on and you don't understand why God has done this but he is with us and he he is journeying along there and he's that comfort uh, it's it's lots of ups and downs is how my faith and my formation has happened uh, through this uh, and there are good days and there are bad days. Um, but I do know that I hold on to the fact that God doesn't make a mistake uh, and that he, he has given us this amazing gift uh, for a really good reason. Uh, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's a, re a reminder that um, God does not choose the best, the brightest, um, the greatest. He chooses the lowly, the weak, the powerless to shame the great, the wise, and the mighty, and um, God does His best work on the margins. Uh, God is God is the one who is perpetually on the side of the underdog, and you know, and and I think it's it's you see the way God uses people like that in the in their various in the various ways, um, whether that's to expose our prejudices, our ignorance, or our apathy is one level but the fact that god brings these people into our lives uh who are or also able to contribute things to our community which we would not be able to do without them so you know and, and that's that's for me is is the biggest uh takeaway um you know we, we shouldn't talk about church as filled with people who are normal and nice okay uh, church is meant to be uh, church is meant is meant for people who are sinners who are broken every different way uh, it is the place where we gather together to balm each other's wounds 
to encourage one another against the forces uh, of darkness that are in this world that constantly assail our minds, our bodies, our health and well-being that want to tear us apart relationally, physically, politically and emotionally. And it forces us to come together and to care for one another. And that I still think is God's, the church's gift to the world. Um, we're not we're not there to promote our own interests. We're there to promote the interests of those who bind themselves to Christ. And that is what I and, you know, the, the whole body of Christ has its own wounds from various battles, from from its own struggles with sin, from the from the fights we've had, from the places we've grown up, from the struggles we've been part of. And yet the the hospital, the hope the healing that we all need comes from that body of Christ that comes together. And that's what I think the, the, the you know, we're, we're reminded to be that type of community, a healing community. Yeah, thanks thanks so much, Mike and Naomi, on uh, the struggles that, that often exist there. Um, and I, I think it, it says a lot about the um, the presumption of, of victoriousness or the presumption of positivity in, in our churches, uh, let alone in, in our society. Um, one final question, I guess, is then, uh, given many people who are on uh, the autism spectrum or um, have disabilities in general, are often so marginalised by the church, so marginalised by our society, that they're when they do write about or they do seek to educate uh, on their um, on on their experience, uh, it is very commonly ignored because it is it is too too far outside of the bounds of of understanding for most people um uh, mike you've written the occasional book um how has the experience of of parenting with marcus uh impacted upon your pastoral reflections uh in those books um and or perhaps i should say as naomi ghost writes them for you (laughs) see chris don't let the secret out all the books are written by Naomi. I'm just doing it because it's a patriarchal context. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, a number of things. It was certainly when I wrote my volume, Evangelical Theology, when we got to the topic of the discussion of the image of God. One thing I argued is that we need to understand the image of God through the lens of disability. And so I would say things like this. If you define the image of God, as our capacity for um, rationality, that would imply that people who have some you know, cognitive disability, um, you know, ranging from you know dementia to dementia to all sorts of things, that would imply that they are less in the image of God. Uh, or even if you de- define the image of God as the capacity to you know have relationships, you know, between men and women. Uh, that type of thing. If you define it even in a relational sense, that would suggest that people with a, you know, a low emotional IQ or people who are perhaps on the autism spectrum um, to some degree, th- that would mean they're kind of less in the image of God. It means if you're less good at relationships, that would mean you're less in the image of God. So one thing I, I, I in, 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 in the book, I, I challenge people is to think about the image of God through the lens of disability. If your definition of the image of God lessens the the nature or degree of the image in people with disability, maybe that's a bad idea. And maybe we need to think of the image of God uh, not as an ableness in terms of rationality or relationships or however you want to pass it out, but maybe we need to think of it as a status that is given and that a person who is nonverbal autistic or a person who is in the late stages of Alzheimer's is still as much in the image of God as anyone else in the world. It doesn't have degrees of variability. It is absolute, it is given, it is bestowed. So, I mean, that was one thing that obviously changed uh, a big theological topic. And I frequently set that as an essay topic. And probably out of, out of all the uh, essay topics I've set, and, and poor Christopher has suffered through many of them, um, that's probably the, the, the essay that students tell me that they appreciate the most, thinking about the image of God and disability. Uh, that, that's the one I get the consistency of the best feedback going like, oh my gosh, I had never thought about this 
this way. This has changed everything. And it's, it's also good because, you know, I've got a brother or a sister with this disability and now I can bring these things together and think about theology, humanity and the church in a far more integrated and a holistic way. So, I mean, that's, that's, you know, one of the ways it's thought about. It's, I've, I've thought about it as well. And also it comes to the nature of the church, the church's mission, witness, um, not just having compassion for people with you know, various uh, disabilities, but how you utilize their gifts, talents, and abilities, make them feel welcomed and valued and treat them uh, as, as, as a type of, uh, of a gift to the church, uh, of a gift even to the world who have their own, their own love, their own compassion, and their own beauty, which they add to a world that can often, to them at least, especially be cold, brutal, and dark. Well, Mike and Naomi, thank you both so much for joining us and and uh, opening up and, and sharing uh, about your experience uh, parenting Marcus uh, with us. Pleasure. It's been a great talking to all of you. Uh, all the best with the series on disability. Mm-hmm.